This is Sight in Africa. Welcome to the second episode of this series from the LSE Field's largest center for Africa. My name is Sierra Mia Willoughby. In this episode of the series, we'll be discussing how knowledge of the African continent is consumed and valued in the North and South. I am joined today by Dr. Simokai Chigudu, Associate Professor of African Politics at University of Oxford, Abida Ferej, who has recently completed a master's degree at LSE, Dr. Eob Gebremeriam, LSE Fellow in International Development, and Marie-Noel Inwokolo, who has recently completed a master's degree at LSE. So today we're going to be talking about what type of knowledge gets disseminated and which does not by looking specifically at the content of reading lists. Analyzing the content of reading lists is crucial as they inform students about the subject they're studying and set dominant frameworks and ideas. In fact, researchers have determined that students regard reading lists as the single most important study resource. I'm a student in the Department of Sociology. Our reading list is very Eurocentric, or it has a very American perspective. Very little literature comes from African thinkers, and it becomes a little difficult to relate it to my reality coming from an African country. Okay, so um, I am studying the law departments, and my reading list, uh, they are heavily slanted in favor of Western societies or Western legal systems. So there's basically zero work done um, or discussed from the African perspective. To be very frank, I was very disappointed uh, since arriving here because I realized that my reading list has been uh, dominated by American and uh, European authors and there, are, there is no single mention of... Uh, Autos or books or anything from Africa, and then I am studying international relation, which is meant to be uh, interstate uh, relation. Even our case studies have been heavily European, and if uh, uh, there are inst there are instances of uh, citing from other places, it it has always been uh, Asian uh, countries. So, but other than that, everything everything has been uh, based around the European and the American experience. I'm a student in the health policy department studying health policy and health economics. Um, my reading lists so far have primarily been from the global north. Um, we've had one or two readings from the global south when it comes to financing healthcare, specifically in developing countries. But apart from that, there's no other signs of authors from the global south in my reading list. I'm a student of international development from the International Development Department and uh, Development Management course. My reading list, uh, I would classify it as broadly uh, more global north, more European and you know, Western based. So I'm studying African development and MSc in African development in the International Development Department. My specific Africa specific module. Um, we have African writers, but I would say that they're not the bulk of the readings. And then for more courses that are more just like the broader um, introduction international development classes, it is, I would say, maybe 75% North. And then actually, you know, 
80 percent um 80 percent from the global north and i'd say about 20 percent from the global south and even if from the global south we specifically it's mainly i think just people from asia um so there isn't even much of a balance i would say even with the global south however authors based in africa rarely feature in northern universities reading lists even in programs such as development and african studies this lack of representation means that the ideologies and understandings of northern-based authors still shape these fields. The Democracy in Africa blog, for example, has sought to tackle this issue by putting together an African politics reading list to support academic colleagues looking for ideas to diversify their course material. In fact, this is one of the reasons why university students across African countries have been calling for a decolonization of higher education. And in fact, I would like to start our conversation by actually digging deeper into the meaning of that term. And maybe I can start with you, Abida. Mm -hmm. As someone who has just completed a master's degree here at LSE, what does that term decolonizing the curricula mean to you? For me personally, what it is, is being able to see yourself within the curriculum, being able to see authors who come from a similar background as yourself, um, and what that represents for knowledge um, in terms of who writes about Africa and what that means about the knowledge that is being consumed about Africa. Thank you. And Marie Noel, what about you? My experience is being able to challenge sort of this um, what do I call it, like a hegemony in knowledge production that usually doesn't represent people from a background that's similar to mine, showing case studies from countries that are sort of what I'm familiar with or live in, but are teaching me what to do. And so it's being able to have that input that features our cultures, our history, and not just, you know, us or people that may look like us. Um, so it's just having that sort of in-depth input um, from people that may look like me, teaching me. Thank you very much for that, Marie Noel. Well, let's get the perspective of the teachers. So Simokai Chigodo, um, you're a teacher at Oxford. What does that term decolonizing the curricula mean to you? I think I'd highlight at this stage three key elements uh, within a move to decolonize um, academia for me as a teacher. Um, the first is what we sometimes refer to as the canon. The canon is what are the foundational texts um, that are sort of laid out in the study of a given topic in development, in politics, or in any other field. Uh, much of the canonical writing, the, the works that are considered groundbreaking, um, come very much from outside of Africa and are often not produced by African writers. So part of decolonization is breaking that canon down and diversifying it. Um, the other question is about theory and about the production of theory. Events that happen within Africa are often the kind of raw material for scholars to go in to examine and then theorize from elsewhere and often in uh, relation to uh, the global north. Um, and then the third component um, is the empirical side, which is to say, you know, what are the topics that gain currency within development studies and whose concerns do they privilege? And I think that's part of the work of decolonization, is setting that empirical agenda of what gets our attention. Thank you very much for that, Smokai. And Eob, can we hear from you now? I would somehow expand it further that beyond decolonization of higher education, I would rather approach it like decolonization of knowledge. Mm because that's where the, the key issue is. Even though physical decolonization has ended in the 1960s in, the, in its formal sense, the aspect of coloniality mm -hmm. is still in place, where ideas are very much 
emanating from, from the West and the lived experiences and the realities of people within Africa are not given that much importance. I think the decolonization of knowledge should also reverse the equation. Thank you so much for that. We're going to be talking specifically about reading lists in this episode. And our Sight in Africa research team has actually been examining development studies reading lists across Sudan, South Africa, Ghana, and the UK. So here's what the Sight in Africa research team found. 74 to 100% of cited authors on these reading lists were not based in Africa. Some programs have no African-based authors on their reading lists. Surprisingly, there was no major variation in representation between reading lists of universities based in Africa and those in the UK. However, South African universities had the highest share of African-based authors cited, with a leading research university achieving a maximum of 26%. Elite universities in the UK had, on average, the lowest share of African-based authors on their reading lists. 82% of listed authors in the surveyed reading lists are based in UK and the US. Eob, do these results surprise you? No, it doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me on many levels. One, given the fact that most higher education institutions in Africa uh, have been very much under-resourced and have very limited capacity or even financial and institutional resources to support their faculty members to do research and even publish in such very well-respected and uh, highly rated journals is something that's, that's one of the realities. So even though the teaching, like the production of students of high caliber has not been that much uh, a problem because you, you definitely find students who did their bachelor degrees perform very well when they do their postgraduate degrees, be it in Europe, in the US, but the production of knowledge of such highly regarded articles by the academic staff members as a faculty has reduced because there is no enough resource for that. And you definitely find lots of uh, universities, uh, lecturers or professors having some additional job, like doing consultancy jobs here and there so that they make their instruments so that they survive. So it, it won't really surprise me. So the issue is somehow much more broader than just simply having something to publish and get cited or being used as a reading listing courses. Speaking to you now as a teacher, Simokai, have these decolonization debates affected how you put together your reading lists? And speaking honestly, you know, how much really has changed? The honest answer is yes, it has made some difference, but there is also a very long way to go. We, in our department, so that's the Oxford Department of International Development, uh, are in a kind of constant and iterative process of reviewing reading lists in light of these kinds of concerns. Um, they are also very often uh, coupled with concerns about gendered representations on the reading list, um, concerns about intersectionality. In other words, taking seriously not only gendered dimensions, but how they intersect um, with various kinds of other identities. And it's very hard to achieve progress quickly in this regard. So I think that the ethos and the commitment um, is there and it's growing and it's something that we're hoping to nurture, but the actual um, change is a much, much slower process. So how do you think you, academics in universities in the UK, for example, how can they build better links mm. with academics in universities in Africa, for example? 
So I think a few steps are being taken, and here I'm going to uh, uh, riff off my colleague uh, Rob Tell Paley, who writes about putting the African back in African studies. Um, one of the kind, of, one one sort of aspect of low-hanging fruit, if you like, is trying to get more. Um, scholars from Africa on editorial boards um, of major journals. Uh, and this achieves a number of different ends. It allows people to, to publish. They're also able to encourage um, authors and advise them on styles to get into journals like African Affairs or the African Studies Reviews or Africa, you know, the kind of leading journals within the field. Uh, and the same would be true of, of development studies journals as well. So I think that's one uh, important step that is relatively easy to achieve. Um, the other is, particularly for things like conferences, I think there needs to be a bit of soul searching um, amongst the leading kind of African and development studies conferences that take part um, in, in, in Western Europe. I mean, you know, let's, let's, let's be honest here. Uh, how many of us struggle to get to a conference because of visa restrictions and limitations? Now imagine how much harder that is when you're based in the African continent. So starting to relocate those and starting to think in a much more deliberate way um, about these little things that can be done that give platforms that give voice and that give opportunity to Africa-based scholars is, is where we begin that work. Of course, the deeper structural transformation, which is, you know, is something that we can come back to and is going to take a lot longer, but there are these small things that we can start doing now. So, Eob, do you have any thoughts on that? The starting point to achieve that is to question the kind of knowledge that we are somehow propagating, the kind of knowledge that we are sending, the kind of knowledge that we are exchanging among ourselves. Are we still somehow using the same kind of knowledge from the, the same kind of characterization of Africa in the way that it has been being told during the colonial period or afterwards by those who have had that kind of power to define what Africa is? Because Africa in the imagined world, the way that's portrayed, be it in the media, in the academic world, is totally different from Africa on the ground. The way that people are living their life in each and every way, in each and every aspect of their daily life. So that kind of the imagined Africa is much more dominant because that's produced by the powerful who are the resource and the narrative who are the control of each and every element, like the, the concept of development, for instance, has always put Africa as an object to be developed, right? But people down in Africa, in different villages, they may not necessarily have the same kinds of expectations, the same kind of narrative to see themselves progressing in the future the way that somebody at University X or Y is trying to put forward. So I think that element should be something that we need to give much more importance in our understanding of decolonization beyond the physical presence of individuals or having someone in Africa being cited or not. So beyond what we've just discussed, um, are there any more barriers um, to having more diverse and representative reading lists? Part of it is, is, is attitudinal. Um, so changing our orientation and our valuations um, of uh, our hierarchies of knowledge, which exist. You know, and I don't think we're always um, forthright or honest in, in dealing with that. Um, and this is, as, is partly related to what uh, Aob was saying about addressing um, coloniality, you know, and trying to think about different kinds of epistemologies. You know, to give an example, um, a concrete example here, um, colleagues at the University of Cape Town and their Gender Institute um, started the journal Feminist Africa. 
uh, Feminist Africa takes a wide range of approaches in how it engages with scholarship on, on, on gender within Africa. Mm. These are wide-ranging philosophical um, positions. These are giving platforms to many young women, um, activists, uh, and so forth. But it's not coming out of a major publisher, be it you know Taylor and Francis or Routledge or anything of that uh, nature. Uh, a lot of the scholarship, kind of, um, while being highly sophisticated, you know, straddles the personal realm as well as the social and political realm in um, sort of interesting um, and creative ways. And yet, I almost never see any Feminist Africa articles um, cited in any gender and development course, um, which might be an indictment of me for not having read widely enough, but I, I dare say it's that that approach to a journal without the kind of recognized institutional support um, is not valorized in the same way um, that a more quote-unquote mainstream um, gender and development publication might be. So I think that that really is is one of the, mm. the barriers. And then I guess the other barrier that I'd, I'd highlight um, briefly is this question, I guess, of language and philosophy. Uh, now, I'm extremely guilty of this because I'm deeply steeped in an Anglo-centric uh, um, Anglo training and perspectives, uh, and there is no way that I would have the language skills to, to write academically in any African language. And yet I recognize in this sense I'm part of the problem, and this is also part of a problem of our education education systems, that um, how do we start to, to um, kind of excavate and bring out and contend with more complex ways of thinking about an African epistemology if we're not even going to be working with the, with the same tools, that we're not able to access um, folklore and stories, we're not able to access uh, philosophical concepts and reasoning that are conveyed through language. We can't get deeper into idioms and how people think about time, progress, and indeed big words like development. Um, and so I think that's a major challenge. Uh, Mahmoud Mamdani has been advocating um, that uh, the ideal African university, you know, mandates language training in any part of, you know, kind of critical social science um, pertaining to Africa. And I think that's something that we need to start taking much more seriously. We're going to come back and get the students' perspective. Marie Noel, how important was it for you during your master's course to have diverse and representative reading lists? Um, very important, actually, um, and I would say, I guess, for two main reasons. The first being sort of the increasing importance of, like, knowledge and knowledge production in, like, the global economy. Um, and the second is just being able to sort of see myself in these readings and understand a lot of these concepts in terms of how they relate to an area that I'm very passionate about. Um, so in terms of knowledge production, we sort of live in a world where now, and even in terms of, like, trade and other things, like, the main competitive factors like knowledge production. And so if you have a space where we are continuously absent, it just makes it a lot difficult to think about, hmm, how do we have that sort of competitive advantage without just sort of mimicking what the other Western countries or what we're told to do. And so I think for us to be able to sort of get into this idea of like sort of the global value chain, even for trade and things of the sort, it's very important for us to understand a lot of these histories and cultures and the backgrounds that sort of our experiences bring and tell us and how to move forward with that so we can understand our place in the world and how we can get past where we are right now. My LSE education, I would say, was 
a bit of a tricky one because I didn't always have that representation on my reading list, but I do recognize that some professors made the effort and also outside of that, right, so knowledge is about inquiry, you're challenging yourself, so having to look for that for myself as well to be able to bring that into discussion. So it was definitely one of sort of those tricky um, experiences, but I think it's very important. It's a difficult conversation. Thank you very much for that. And I think, Abida, that diverse and representative reading lists were probably similarly important to you as well. Mm -hmm. there's, there's two sides of the argument here. I think in constructing reading lists, what you find is that professors basically define what is important mm -hmm. and what isn't important. They basically can, can create, you're getting students who basically may have some opinion, but technically we can say they have somewhat of a blank slate on certain topics. And as a professor, you're basically saying to them, this is what is important and this is what isn't important. And so in creating those reading lists, I think it's very conscious, especially when incorporating, say, case studies and referencing specific nuances, that you're not doing it as an add-on. And I think a lot of the time what happens, especially when you're um, talking about Africa, it's sort of given as this, especially in development studies, it's kind of sort of brought in as this like case study, as this little add-on at the end, instead of being centered as, the, as sort of the primary um, part of what we're studying. So, Io, what do you think are the long-term consequences of these decolonizing debates on the wider field of development studies? Uh, the long-term consequences, and it's, it's all about uh, changing the existing power dynamics and power relation, because knowledge is one of the key instruments of domination, or the key instruments through which that injustice or inequality is sustained. You will definitely have different structural and institutional manifestation of that. So probably in the long term, the key outcome would be, or the key uh, objective of such kinds of movement, decolonizing knowledge or decolonizing higher education is to have that honest conversation, how uh, we need to plan both the present and the future, how we need to understand our past, because our, our present is not, for instance, that, that's how development, the mainstream development thinking still somehow portrays Africa, like the present Africa is portrayed as the past of Europe and the future of Africa is what is supposed to be the present of Europe. So the way that we reorient our understanding of history, culture, and time will be very much the key outcome of such kind of processes, which will definitely be a very, very uh, difficult task. And that's why we may not, we may not see the fruits in any near future but we should keep on pushing the boundaries. Marie Noel, um, from the student's perspective, do you see, what do you see as being the long-term consequences of these decolonizing debates? Um, I definitely think it will have a positive impact on the type of knowledge that we create and put out there, right? So, because for me, I feel like we're, we had sort of grandparents that did that, but we've come back to sort of an Africa that won't, that won't be quiet anymore. And it's this idea of, you know, you've been knocking at the door for a long time, and we are getting our place in this space, and if you won't create that space, I'm pretty sure we will 
build a whole different house on the side. And so I think that continuing conversations like this are super important and they have sort of the ability to change that conversations that will be had in terms of development studies and even other di um, disciplines. I know that it's one of those things that will be difficult, but I think the conversation should continue through forums like this and through people continually, um, continuously bringing it up to professors and teachers, like flagging that and just not being silent about that because it does have the potential to shift things and we need to make that shift happen. Simoka, would you like to respond to that? Given the pressures that we feel within the university, whether it's um, various kinds of um, uh, impact agendas or research evaluation frameworks and so forth, you're constantly being um, pushed sort of structurally um, to remain focused on um, a knowledge production agenda that is set largely within the West and disseminated through uh, universities and journals based in the West. Um, and I think... It's on this count, I'm not terribly optimistic in terms of, of reversing those trends. Um, but if anything, that pessimism um, suggests uh, even more ardent efforts um, to challenge that. Thank you very much to all of you. Um, it's been a real pleasure. Um, Dr. Simokai Chigudu, Abida Farage, Dr. Eob Gebermariam, and Marie Noel in Wokolo. If you are on a development studies program, we'd like to hear from you. This is because we were only able to analyze reading lists from four UK programs, two South Africans, one Ghanaian and one Sudanese program. Please check the Africa at LSC blog post by Tin Hinein El Kadi on how to analyze the representation of your reading list and tweet us via the hashtag SightInAfrica. Sight in Africa was funded by the LSE Knowledge Exchange and Impact Fund, the LSE Department of International Development, and the Review of African Political Economy Journal. <laughs>